Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Benjamin Chantal about his recent book, Buddhism, Politics, and the Limits of Law, The Pyrrhic Constitutionalism of Sri Lanka, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016 as part of its Comparative Constitutional Law and Policy series. In this book, Chantal examines a relationship between constitutional law and religious conflict in Sri Lanka during the 20th and 21st centuries. Situating his study alongside broader conversations in the field of constitutional law, and specifically debates about law's effect on religion, Chantal challenges the widely held idea that constitutional law, properly administered, is a useful tool for reducing conflict between and within religious communities. Drawing on unpublished and previously unexamined archival materials written in Tamil, Sinhalese, and English, Chantal argues that in the case of Sri Lanka, constitutional law has actually hardened pre-existing religious conflicts and encouraged religious actors to use the law and courts to frame a variety of legal fights in explicitly religious terms. The Pyrrhic constitutionalism in the subtitle of the book is the term that Chantal has coined to describe how, in this case, the practice of constitutional law actually exacerbates the very problems it was designed to resolve. In the first half of the book, Chantal details the fascinating history of two of Sri Lanka's most important constitutions, an initial one in 1948 and a revised version ratified in 1972, focusing specifically on the section that addresses Buddhism and religion. Many familiar with the post-independence history of Sri Lanka might interpret this section as but a product of Buddhist chauvinism and Sinhala nationalism. However, by looking at an impressive number of drafts and archival materials, Chantal reveals that the process of drafting this religious clause was in fact a messy back-and-forth between several competing parties, including those who wanted the government to completely remove itself from religious affairs, those who wanted the government to proactively protect religious rights, and those who hoped the state would grant Buddhism a special protected status in post-colonial Sri Lanka. He further shows that even among those who wanted Buddhism to enjoy special protection, there was much disagreement about how the government should execute such protection, and to what degree the government should assume responsibilities traditionally allocated to the Sangha's elders, or sometimes to the king. The second half of the book provides case studies that detail precisely how it is that constitutional law exacerbates extant conflicts within and between religious groups. After providing a number of examples of the way in which the Buddhism and Religion Clause created an incentive for Buddhist groups to use the courts as a space for publicly airing their grievances, Chantal then moves on to the case of a monk who applied for a driving license but, after a long legal process, was eventually denied. Scholars of Buddhism will find this case fascinating regardless of their area or period of expertise. For this highly contentious case, 
which captivated the Sri Lankan media and public, gets to the heart of a perennial issue within Buddhist societies, namely the degree to which secular rulers should be involved in enforcing Buddhist monastic rules. In the book's penultimate chapter, Shantol looks at Buddhist anxiety over religious conversion, specifically cases of Buddhists converting to Christianity, and again argues that constitutional law has inadvertently intensified this controversy. In the interview, we barely scratched the surface of the book, and listeners interested in following Shantol's arguments in greater detail and reading the case studies, most of which we could not get to in the interview, will have to pick up a copy of the book themselves. But our brief conversation should make it clear that the book will be of great value to those interested in religious conflict, particularly as it plays out in the courts, in conceptions of religious rights, in Sri Lankan Buddhism, and in the relationship between the Sangha and secular rulers. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with Benjamin Shantal, and we're going to be talking about his recent book, Buddhism, Politics, and the Limits of Law, The Pyrrhic Constitutionalism of Sri Lanka, published in 2016 by Cambridge University Press. Benjamin Shantal is Senior Lecturer in Buddhism and Asian Religions in the Religion Program at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Ben works in New Zealand, but he was born in the States and completed his PhD at the University of Chicago. Ben, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, thanks for having me. So I want to begin by asking how you came to the study of religion, Buddhism, and Sri Lanka, and to the study of law. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. This is uh, wonderful to be on the New Books Network, and I, I'm a frequent listener. Um, and I've, I, you know, I often listen to the New Books Network and think, how would I answer that question that that, that you ask? Um, and I guess I, I would answer it in two ways. I mean, on one hand, I, I came to the study of of religion and Buddhism in Sri Lanka quite by accident, actually, uh, as an undergraduate. I was I went to the university to study pre med, and I ended up taking some classes in the religion program, um, taught um, many of them taught by John Holt. Uh, who, as your listeners will know, is a, a well-known scholar of, of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. And it was really through his teaching that I, uh, you know, through his classes that I became interested in the study of Buddhism in Sri Lanka and, and eventually went to Sri Lanka as well. And it was, I guess, the other part of that story, how I ended up, you know, carrying on studying in Sri Lanka. I mean, here I just, it, there's been so many amazing people that have been so gracious and, and uh, you know, generous and just, um, kind to me in Sri Lanka, and it was, you know, in, in, in a lot of respects, the fact that I met those people in Sri Lanka that's that's kept me going back and working there. Um, and the question about law, I think, is is a little bit more is is also. I mean, I kind of came to it accidentally in some ways, although I sometimes think back about my, you know, my my history and my life and my family, and I realize that yes, there, we did have lawyers in our extended family, and there, you know, the legal profession was kind of around in some ways. Um, but I never sort of imagined myself going into graduate school doing work on law in particular. And it wasn't until I went to the field to do my dissertation work uh, that I discovered that you know, although I had gone into the field thinking I would do a kind of history of public holidays in Sri Lanka, uh, and especially this one period where. Um, you know, the Sri Lankan government actually changed the weekends, the official uh, public holidays in Sri Lanka from Saturday and Sunday from the sort of solar uh, calendar to a lunar, you know, 
Buddhist calendar of having holidays uh, on the lunar quarters in the day and the day after them. And so uh, I was sort of fascinated, like, how could that happen and why did that happen and what were the mechanics of that? Uh, but then in looking at that, I sort of quickly discovered that what was motivating me were bigger questions about the state regulation of religion and more specifically the legal regulation of religion. Mm. Uh, so that when I went back to Chicago um, after the field work, uh, I really was, a, you know, I sort of tried to immerse myself then in in the law school and in legal studies um, and I guess in some ways the story of the book and the story of my career, um, has a lot to do with the fact, just the, the happy coincidence that I ended up at the University of Chicago and that I was able to split my time between, you know, not just the, the sort of history of religions program, but the P, you know, in political science, they're quite happy for me to, you know, come into their world and, 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 and the law school, uh, were happy for me to sit in and on classes and, and people like Tom Ginsburg would, you know, take an hour here and there to meet with me and talk about my work. And um, so I think a lot of it, I, I really have to sort of, I, lo- I, I owe to my experiences there. Hmm. So going into the book, in the beginning of this, um, the book that we're discussing, you locate your study within a broader literature and set of theories about the relationship between constitutional law and the management of religion. Now, you note that there's been a broadly held assumption that the establishment of constitutional law reduces conflict between and within religious communities. Yet in this book, you argue that at least in the case of Sri Lanka, the opposite is true. And this is the situation that you call uh, Pyrrhic constitutionalism. So I wanted to ask you briefly to explain what you mean by constitutional law, since this might not be obvious to everyone. Um, and also, could you then please describe this Pyrrhic constitutionalism and how it contradicts the prevailing assumption and the relationship between constitutional law and religious conflict? So I, th- I think this idea of Pyrrhic constitutionalism comes out of uh, my experience being in Sri Lanka uh, at the end of the Civil War. And, and, and in, in particular, um, something that I saw, uh, an idea that I saw in a lot of the op-eds, in a lot of the um, you know, punditry that was coming out after the end of the civil war about how, what Sri Lanka needed to do so that another civil war wouldn't happen again. Uh, and what I kept seeing was this idea that if, if what Sri Lanka needs to do is to sort of get the law right and particularly get its constitution right, that if it could just, um, you know, create the perfect constitution, they'd have less conflicts, uh, generally and in, in, in particular less conflicts, uh, involving religion. Um, and then, and, and therefore, you know, the, the sort of implicit point was that, uh, you know, the civil war in Sri Lanka and other types of bad outcomes were the result of, of bad law. Um, and I reacted to that in a number of ways. You know, one, one way was just that, wow, you know, after the end of this very complex and longstanding conflict, it's really people are holding out, you know, law or the rule of law as really the, um, you know, central thing that people have to focus on, which I think made me a little uneasy, um, uh, just generally, uh, but also the fact that in my research, I, I, I seem to be coming to another conclusion, uh, which was that, you know, counterintuitively, the practice of creating and interpreting and using constitutional law, you know, during the 20th century and in, in early 21st century had actually seemed to be contributing to deepening and entrenching conflicts out of religion.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com
Um, but, you know, the, the, the punchline is that, you know, rather than, you know, the constitutional law, which was, you know, being held out as the solution to the problem of, of conflicts over religion, uh, I, I was seeing as perpetuating the problem. And so this book, I mean, the, the idea of pure constitutionalism kind of argues against uh, a sort of failure paradigm, for lack of a better word, a, a kind of idea that, um, you know, undesirable outcomes in Sri Lanka are the result of failed, failed law, um, that, you know, that, that if we could just get the law right, we can we can sort of get life right. Um, and that I was finding that, no, actually, you know, relatively in, in this particular case and and, and uh, in the book, I sort of hypothesize that this is happening in other cases, too, that actually functioning constitutionalism actually worsened the problems it set out to resolve. So I, I saw this. I mean, the, the, the word Puric constitutionalism is a play on this phrase Puric victory, uh, which, you know, it co- basically connotes the idea that a victory that comes at, at, at great cost so that, you know, you know, y- you achieve something, you know, I'm, I'm able to, you know, get to the top of, uh, of, of my career, but at the cost of, you know, alienating my family or, at, you know, pissing a whole bunch of people off or, sure. uh, you know, you know, I don't know, costing my own health or something like that. So it's a Pyrrhic victory. So that this is Pyrrhic constitutionalism in the sense that, uh, you know, constitutionalism is, is succeeding uh, in some ways, uh, you know, institutionally or um, formally or in, in certain kind of, uh, you know, it, it's doing the things that we think it should do, uh, but that the cost is that it's it's sort of deepening the problems that it sets out to resolve. Um, and let me just note a couple of things here. I mean, I think this this idea of pure constitutionalism gets misinterpreted, uh, you know, in a, in a couple of ways. And let me just try and mark them here. Uh, One is one is that I want to say I'm definitely not arguing against constitutional law writ large. Um, You know, as someone who's followed Sri Lanka for for many years, I know and I believe that constitutional law and legal action play an important role, you know, in helping prevent some of the worst abuses of power in Sri Lanka, torture and land alienation and many other things. Uh, You know, and I also believe that, you know, for some people in Sri Lanka, constitutional law and constitutional litigation is sort of the only or one of the few recourses they have uh, to defending their interests and, and um, trying to achieve justice. So I, I don't want to, I'm not arguing that constitutional law as a whole is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an argument about what constitutional law does, particularly to conflicts over religion. Uh, I, and, and, here's, here, and here let me make the second point of clarification. I'm not arguing that constitutional law creates conflicts over religion that you know these conflicts that constitutional law is is attempting to manage uh these are conflicts that exist in have existed in sri lanka for a long time in many cases uh and exist outside uh the legal sphere if we could say that um this is an argument about what constitutional law has done to conflicts over religion Mm -hmm. uh here let me clarify another part of the argument uh, that often gets confused, which is that I'm not arguing that constitutional law has created these conflicts over religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these conflicts have existed for a long time. Um, you know, these conflicts would exist whether or not there were courts uh, to litigate them in many cases. Uh, but what I'm saying is that constitutional law actually sort of deepens them. It makes them seem uh, or makes them, in fact, become more rigid, uh, more intractable. Uh, it causes people to express and understand these conflicts in more uncompromising terms, and it makes these these, these issues harder to resolve. Uh, it, 
and, and I think in, in making these two sort of clarifications, I, I also need to clarify a couple of terms here, which I think may confuse people too. So and, and one is the term constitutionalism, uh, which, <clears throat> you know, a lot of scholars of constitutional law, you know, I, I think this, this is something that they remind me of when I uh, present my work in, in, in comparative constitutional law settings, which is that, uh, you know, when, when most people are speaking about constitutionalism, particularly in political science, uh, what they're thinking of is limited government. Mm. Uh, so that it's, it's law limiting, limiting, uh, what might otherwise be a kind of autocratic government. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I have a much more specific kind of understanding in mind, uh, which I refer to in the book as constitutional practice, which is that by constitutionalism in, in the Pyrrhic constitutionalism, uh, what I'm talking about is, is constitutional practice, namely the making, uh, debating, implementing, and interpreting of constitutional law. So the the, the sort of total uses of constitutional law, um, you know, both in the sort of legal domain and in the more general societal domain. And and you know, while that's a kind of a fine distinction, and, and those are in some ways arbitrary abstractions, uh, you know, I do make a case in the book that um, I think that we need to think about the work of constitutional law you know, both in its sort of formal legal institutional setting, but also at the sort of more general uh, diffuse effects that constitutional law can have on on societies. Um, so that's constitutionalism. So that that I use that term, I guess, in a in a slightly specialized way that maybe not all political scientists or legal scholars uh, may think of. Sure. And the other sort of phrase that I sort of have a specialized understanding for is this idea of conflicts over religion. Uh, and by that, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, there's some certain conflicts in the world that are self, you know, obviously or self-evidently religious, uh, that we can just sort of, uh, you know, identify as though, for example, you know, a debate over church property is simply a religious conflict that it, that, you know, we can, uh, cordon off, uh, that we, we can, we can typify it as, as a religious conflict as opposed to a political conflict or an economic conflict. Mm. I, I don't think that that's the case. And so by conflicts over religion, <coughs> I mean, what I, what I mean is um, conflicts involving groups of people who use religion, religion as a um, as a banner of self-identification. I mean, conflicts that involve objects or activities or artifacts or events uh, that are being identified as religious by certain actors. Mm -hmm. And I also mean, I think importantly, or you know, one important part of this book is that I'm also talking about conflicts over the category of religion. So conflicts over whether something is or is not religious or uh you know, something that you see a lot of in the book, conflicts over whether or not something is Buddhist or properly Buddhist. Mm. Um, so it's, so it's, yeah, the argument period constitutionalism or the phrase, I think, you know, packs a lot of uh, sort of specificity into it that, 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 you know, might be misunderstood. Mm -hmm. um, but in some ways, I said, I put it at the forefront of the book um, because I felt like it, it nicely captured, you know, what I was going, where I was going with the arguments, even though it's kind of a, a weird phrase that puts a lot of people off and because <laughs> because one one or two people happened to get really excited about that phrase when i coined it at, at one stage and said oh you should put that on the cover mm. uh, and i sort of took that enthusiasm all the way all the way to the end of the process so yeah. hopefully it's not off-putting to people no no i don't think so um great now, you note that Sri Lanka is a particularly important case study for understanding the relationship between constitutional law and religious conflict. Why is this so? Um, so, 
I mean, part of the reason I chose Sri Lanka, obviously, is that, uh, you know, I have this history of working in the country and I'm, I'm sort of invested in Sri Lanka. Uh, but I do think that the case of Sri Lanka has a lot to say to uh, a lot to add to discussions of comparative constitutional law more generally, um, to say nothing of the sort of Buddhist studies component of this at this stage. Um, and I think one of the things to say is that there is, I mean, this is not something that I assert, this is something that's been noted by a lot of scholars of comparative constitutional law, that the field uh, has a certain number of biases in it, uh, sort of Anglo-centric bias towards, uh, or Anglophone bias towards English language uh, jurisdictions, uh, sort of Eurocentric bias, uh, with some exceptions, South Africa, India, or Japan, uh, and that, and, and a sort of secular liberal bias, so that you know, secular liberal constitutions are seen as kind of the prototype. Um, and Sri Lanka, you know, is transgressive to all those uh, biases. I mean, it's not Anglo-centric, it's not Eurocentric, it's definitely not a secular liberal constitution necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that the Sri Lankan case is more kind of the norm than the exception if we look at uh, constitutional practice globally. Uh, so, for example, almost half of the world's constitutions give a preferential treatment to a particular religion or religions, just like Sri Lanka. Uh, you know, most of the world's constitutions are outside of Europe. And, you know, a huge proportion come from post-colonial countries in the global south, just, you know, like Sri Lanka. So so part of, I think, the contribution of this book is to, you know, provide an example um, to provide, you know, to, to begin to kind of uh, think about the issues in constitutional law, you know, as John and Gene Komarov say, you know, to think, to do theory from the South, right? To think about um, these issues from a place that doesn't uh, often get, uh, you know, represented within the mainstream of comparative constitutional law. Great. Um, so I wanted to actually ask you about how it is that constitutional constitutional law actually are conducive to exacerbating religious conflict. But I think I'm going to leave that for when we get into some of your examples. Okay. Um, yep where you talk about the sort of vague language that is often characteristic of constitutions. Um, so going into the structure of the book, it's it, the book's divided into to two parts. And in the first part, you discuss the history of constitutional law in Sri Lanka and outline a process that culminated with the, or culminated with uh, in the 1972 constitution. And in particular, you're interested in the so-called Buddhism chapter within that constitution, mm-hmm. which grants Buddhism a privileged status, even as it guarantees freedom of religious thought and practice uh, for all religions. So the first part's more history in this sense. And in the second half of the book, you provide the details that support your contention, namely that in the case of Sri Lanka, constitutional law has tended to harden and escalate conflicts between religious communities and has, in addition, injected religion into conflicts from which it was previously absent. So I'd like to begin with the second chapter in which you outline three early approaches to managing religion. These are the preventative paradigm, which was characteristic of the first Sri Lankan constitution ratified in 1948, and which was largely interested in forbidding the government from interfering with religion. Then there's the protectionist paradigm, which has the government actively protecting religious rights. And finally, there's the promotional paradigm, which sought to grant Buddhism a privileged status. I was wondering if you could please explain the key differences between these three and what motivated support for each. Thanks for that question. Um, So before I get to sort of defining those three, um, those three approaches, I, I mean, I just want to sort of frame this in terms of what I'm trying to do in this chapter, which is to point out the politics 
um, and uh, the sort of historical forces which led to uh, you know the creation of certain ways of, of of thinking about the legal regulation of religion and articulating it. Um, and so, in some ways, I'm reversing the way we often think about uh, the process of making law, which is that we you know we think about the best way to manage religion, and then we sort of advocate for that in law. Um, and here what I'm arguing is that, in fact, there was there was very specific, um, you know, political alignments and incentives that led to the, uh, the, the advocating of certain approaches to religion. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, we really need to think about the politics of religious rights during the period to understand uh, d- during the sort of decolonizing period to understand uh, the current constitutional politics now. So, so, so anyway, what I what I argue is that um, <clears throat> what you see in Sri Lanka's first constitution, um, the 1948 constitution, uh, against which the, the the later constitutions that I uh, that I analyze in the in the book are cast, is uh, is is a process by which three different Approaches to religion are being um, are being advanced and and being contested. So the first is, and, and the one that ends up winning out is what I call the preventative parad- paradigm of uh, managing religion. And this this paradigm that the, the the key idea is that you know the goal what constitutions need to do with respect to religion is to sort of uh, prevent them for in, from interfering in politics, mm-hmm. and uh, therefore it's a kind of. Uh, an approach to the legal management of religion that seeks to, you know, prevent religious ideas or religious influences from influencing parliament to prevent parliament from, you know, um, <clears throat> making laws that will, uh, impact religious communities and so on. Uh, and this, this idea or this, this paradigm, I argue was really at the time in, in the, in the 1940s, uh, both the paradigm that was being advocated by certain very important uh, elites in Sri Lanka, including Ivor Jennings, uh, the um, uh, a British constitutional theorist who uh, helped start um, the University of Ceylon mm-hmm. in Sri Lanka and one of the key constitutional theorists, um, you know, both in Sri Lanka and other parts of the world uh, in the subsequent decades. Uh, <clears throat> and um, Dia Senanayaka, who is the sort of, I guess most influential uh, Sri Lankan politician at the time, and that they were arguing for this preventative paradigm uh, in some degree uh, in, because it cohered with official British <coughs> colonial policy at the time. So that this was what the the colonial office was advocating or was suggesting should be done in, in other uh, parts of the decolonizing world and that it was this paradigm uh in that in that this paradigm was also was being challenged at the time by two others uh, one was a paradigm which the opponents of senanayaka and jennings uh, who were still part of the political elite in sri lanka were advocating uh, which is what i call this protectionist paradigm and, and where that paradigm differed in that is that instead of you know trying to prevent the influence of religion uh, on politics, the, the sort of guiding image here is protect. Is that it was the state's role to sort of actively protect religion uh, through a series of fundamental rights. So, so making religion, uh, securing the, the the place of religion and, and, and the free exercise of religion uh, through the um, uh, enumeration of discrete fundamental rights. Uh, and this this approach to to, to 
uh, the legal regulation of religion was also one associated with uh, other um, uh, uh, anti-colonial nationalist movements, hmm. uh, particularly in India. So, uh, and it was chosen, um, you know, not only uh, for the kind of model of legal regulation that it advanced, but also because it was known uh, that this was a model that was antagonistic to the official British colonial policy. So the official official policy was we don't want to have fundamental rights. You know, these, these we don't want to create constitutions. The, the colonial office said, you know, we're not going to have we we're not in favor of um, uh, independent constitutions with bills of fundamental rights. And so these groups, including this group in Sri Lanka, was saying was in some ways advancing this as part of a politics of <clears throat> anti-colonial nationalism and as part of a politics of asserting you know their solidarity with other anti-colonial movements such as in India, and as part of a politics of uh, signaling their affirmation of and uh, and um, participation in the nascent and growing human rights movement in Europe. So that mm-hmm. this was also the language of, uh, you know, the, the nascent United Nations of the, you know, what would become the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so this was a very strategic move in other ways. So, um, and then finally, you know, the, 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 there was also a third kind of movement, uh, a third uh, uh, group of people who were advancing a, a strategy for managing religion legally. Uh, and this I call the promotional strategy. And this this is advanced mainly by certain Buddhist groups at the time. Uh, but this strategy uh, was concerned with uh, promoting and securing the status of Buddhism over and above other religions. Uh, so in, in some ways, they didn't see it necessarily as a zero-sum game that you know Buddhism would be promoted to the exclusion or to the detriment of other religions. Uh, but the language of, the, uh, of these groups was that you know Buddhism had been um, uh, you know, debilitated for various reasons during the colonial eras. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Sri Lanka has been a, a colonized by European um, countries since this sort of uh, 1505, mm-hmm. uh, and that you know the 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 independent constitution had an obligation to try and rehabilitate and and um, repair Buddhism from this state of colonial degradation, and so you know the. the the idea that was to sort of give Buddhism special status, give uh, promote uh, Buddhist interests and promote uh, Buddhist, Buddhist well-being in the new constitution, and and you know this is important, you know n- not only because of this broader uh, and, and sorry and let me just also say that in that promotional paradigm, uh, you know these groups were also taking inspiration from from abroad. I mean they were taking inspiration from things that were happening in Burma and uh, you know citing. Um, you know, Pakistan, the, the, the promotion of Islam for the nascent Pakistan as, uh, you know, examples legitimating this, uh, this promotional paradigm. Uh, and so, you know, thinking about this and understanding this is not important, not only is important, not only just to think about the sort of politics of religious rights during this decolonizing period. Uh, and, you know, that this, you know, the constitutional scripts that you chose, uh, were very carefully calibrated to reflect a certain you know, both domestic and international politics, mm-hmm. uh, but also that it was these three paradigms, this and, and this language of, you know, fundamental rights and this language of Buddhism, Buddhism having the foremost place. This all emerges during the 1940s and, and, and 50s. And this becomes the language through which Buddha, the debates over the place of religion in Sri Lanka are uh, are dealt with 
you know, from then until the present, right? So the whole mm. to understand the current constitutional politics and 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 law regarding religion, you really have to understand uh, its backdrop. It's it coming out of this uh, particular set of struggles. Yeah, no, I think that's a very important point. So, so, so basically, we have this 1948 constitution that's largely preventative. You know, government basically doesn't interfere with religion. Mm. But then you note that in the 50s and the 60s, the 50s and 60s were in character characterized instead by a move away from the preventative model and a sort of simultaneous advocacy on the part of the government for both the protectionist, um, that is the sort of, everyone gets their, uh, the government actively protects people's religious rights, the protectionist paradigm and the promotional um, paradigm whereby Buddhism is given special status. Um, and this is particularly um, the case with the uh, figure of uh, Mandata Naika, the prime minister from 1956-59. Um, so, and he promoted both these approaches simultaneously. So I wonder if you could just talk about um, that. How did, how were these two approaches, on the one hand, religious rights for all, um, and equally so, on the other hand, the promotion of Buddhist, Buddhism, how were these advance simultaneously um what were the political motives there and um what was the outcome yeah it's it's thanks for that question i mean it's it's a big topic um sorry that's i i think let me i mean maybe i mean one helpful thing to say would be that i think what you see in the 1950s and 60s in sri lanka um I think there's maybe three things that I'm trying to do uh, in in talking about that period. Uh, the first thing is to say that, um, I mean, what you see is a kind of constitutional law and debates over the content of the constitution being really at the forefront of politics um, from just almost as soon as the 1948 constitution is ratified. Uh, so these debates are ha- happening constantly, you know, Lots of politicians are talking about, um, you know, how the 1948 Constitution was incomplete or imperfect, and what needs to go into the new one. And so, Bandar and I can really. So, the second thing I'm trying to do is to, I think, fill out the understanding that we have of this this uh, Prime Minister of Sri Lanka, S W R D Bandar Nayaka, who, you know, for scholars of Buddhism in Sri Lanka, I mean, he's most famous for the fact that he is associated with a sort of populist Buddhist nationalism in the 1950s. Um, and, you know, while this is definitely part of his legacy, um, I tried, I'm trying to fill out his legacy by looking at other, and, and actually to complicate the portrait of the, of him as a politician, uh, by looking, by looking at basically the two sides of his policy portfolio with, with respect to religion. One side, uh, in which, um, you know, he really was trying to uh, introduce uh, fundamental rights or a kind of a list of fundamental rights, socioeconomic rights, um, rights to freedom of religion. Uh, he, he was a sort of a real, you know, bona fide uh, liberal uh, in one side of his personality. And indeed, uh, it was that side of his personality that gave birth to a certain set of constitutional reform initiatives. Hmm. Uh, and then another side of his, his his personality in which he was trying to actualize this promotional paradigm, uh, which led to another set of initiatives. And so that this chapter is sort of showing how how he reconciled them, trying to use sort of 
you know, archives that people hadn't looked at very much to or or at all to kind of give some insight into his sort of um, using, you know, both bringing these things together uh, as as a as a kind of consistent pair in his mind, uh, but also the way in which you know it, these two thing the way he joins these two things together as uh as a reproach of the 1948 constitution and it's it's his move in doing that that really defines the constitutional politics of the 1960s uh in which we get to this this, the third thing i'm trying to do which is to say that um uh you know once you once you say okay what's wrong with the 1948 constitution is that it it doesn't protect the fundamental rights of citizens and it doesn't, you know, give Buddhism its special place, you know, then you have to think about, okay, well, what does that mean? And how would that be, uh, you know, how, how would those two things be enacted? And, you know, the, the, the 1950s and the and 1960s are a time of actually trying to figure out what, are, what do those things actually mean? And, um, and, and seeing the debates within sort of both, uh, movements, you know, both debates within among the people who, are advocating or not advocating for fundamental rights, and among the people who are advocating for some special status for Buddhism, uh, you see that you know these two slogans, which come to define the rejection of the 1948 Constitution, you start to see the fissures within the that, that underlie those uh, uh, those two slogans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah, and maybe that's a good point to mention that it's not sort of you know we've mentioned these three. Approaches, but of course, there weren't just simply three camps. There were all there was all sorts of all sorts of divisions within those different approaches. There were divisions, uh, and there were and indeed there were other approaches as well. And I, I mentioned you know the fifty fifty uh, proposal in, mm-hmm. in in the book. I mean, there were others as well. Uh, these I I, I I I signal out as having the most longevity and being highly influential during the period. Yeah. So, in the fourth chapter of the book, you turn your focus to the Buddhism chapter of the uh, nineteen seventy two Constitution. And let me just read the part that you're concerned with it reads the republic of sri lanka shall be shall give to buddhism the foremost place and accordingly it shall be the duty of the state to protect and foster the buddhist sasana while assuring to all religions the rights granted by articles 10 and 14 1e um now rather than focusing on the final product that is on the buddhism chapters it appears in the ratified constitution you use a large number of unpublished and previously unexamined sources in uh, in in three different languages, in Tamil and uh, Sinhalese and English, to present a very lucid and detailed history of the process whereby the final version was produced. Um, and indeed, that's this is one of the larger sort of methodological points of your book is that you can't just focus on the final the final law or constitution. You have to sort of look at all the documents that, um, to map out the process by which that final product was, um, produced, but we don't have time to cover that detailed history and listeners will have to read the book themselves in order to understand with greater precision, the process that you so clearly describe here. But I was wondering if you could just outline how it was that the various interest groups involved arrived at the final version of the Buddhism chapter. Absolutely. Um, and yes, I, I mean, thank you. It, it, you know, it's a busy chapter and it's uh, it, it's kind of a long chapter. Um, and I think really, I mean, there's a number of points that sort of interested me when I started looking through these drafting documents. And, and let me just let me just mark two here that sort of seem to relate one that relates directly to your question and one that 
uh, came up, which was which was sort of interesting and will be, I think, of interest to to historians and scholars of law and and, and Buddhism. So the the first is that uh, the first point is that you know what, what emerged through these looking at these drafting documents uh, was that some of the most contentious debates about what went into the Constitution uh, were not between those who did and didn't want you know, special protections for Buddhism in the Constitution, uh, you know, the most contentious debates were actually between, were, were actually within the sort of Buddhist side of things among different groups who wanted different formulations, uh, who wanted those special protections for Buddhism to take different forms. And I think, you know, one of the things you're asking with the question is, <clears throat> are you getting at what the question is, the fact that there were, in fact, uh, at least two or two dominant uh, sides within uh, within with, uh, among Buddhists uh, who wanted very different things when it came to constitutional protections for Buddhism. So you know one w- one group uh, wanted uh, state uh, constitutional protections for Buddhism in the form of uh, supervisory powers for Buddhism on the part of the state. So this, that the state had some kind of say over Buddhism, like so that the state, you know, gave the state the power to sort of make national Buddhist councils or to regulate monastic conduct or to, um, you know, um, uh, be part of the uh, national regulation of Buddhism. Uh, and, and and I think that that the sort of formulation of, of special prerogatives for Buddhism that fits with that group might be thought of as Buddhism as the state religion, right? So that um and and here the state religion sort of means, you know, there's the there's a uh, a double entendre there, which is you know it's the religion that's most supported by the state, but also the religion over which the state has some um, uh, administrative responsibility. Mm. Um, but on the other side, uh, were people who were arguing that yes, you know, there should be state funds and state kind of protections for Buddhism, uh, but. No state, but but there shouldn't be state oversight over Buddhism, uh, and that here what was important was to maintain uh, the autonomy of the group that is, you know, historically or or uh, traditionally responsible for Buddhism, which is the which is the monks, mm-hmm. and so there was a large group of people who were involved in constitutional negotiations, including monastic groups, uh, who were primarily concerned with securing monastic autonomy and making sure that the state respected the uh, <clears throat> monks as traditional uh, authorities for Buddhism. And so, you know, they didn't like that language of Buddhism as the state religion uh, and proposed a number of other uh, phrases. And so that what you see then when you, th- when you, when you look at the, f- the final constitutional project, uh, pr- product, when you read Buddhism shall have the foremost place, I think what most people normally read is, ah, look, there was this group of Buddhist nationalists, you know, this mm-hmm. large amorphous category of people, uh, you know, in, uh, the implied idea is that they're coherent, that they're working to a single purpose. And they, you know, pressured uh, the government of the time to give this special status to Buddhism. But in fact, what you see is something totally different. Uh, and, you know, one of the one of the punchlines of the book is like, you know, Buddhist nationalists or Buddhist nationalism is a very internally diverse category. And it's a it's a pretty rough hewn way of thinking about what various Buddhist groups are doing at the time, often working at odds to each other, uh, working at cross purposes. So it's, it, you know, it's utility is limited. But so what you see, when you look at foremost place, what, 
what you should think is, ah, this is a term of deliberate equivocation mm. uh, that's deliberately unclear so as to please two sides from within you know, the, the two different constituencies of Buddhists, one constituency that didn't want the state to have any supervisory powers over the monks or over Buddhism, and one that thought the state should have some supervisory power. So, so the foremost place is actually, you know, it's not some compromise between secularism and a Buddhist state. It's not some like, uh, you know, phrase that was added at the, at, 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 because there was a kind of a unidirectional push from a coherent group of Buddhist nationalists. I mean, this is a phrase that was a phrase of compromise among Buddhists themselves. That's, that's the first, I think, thing that really interested me about the archival hit, you know, in looking through the archives, but also that one of the punchlines of the chapter. Um, and then the other punchline, which I think is a kind of a, a smaller punchline, but was also really interesting to me was, you know, the kind of, uh, limits or the, the results of, you know, debating a constitution in three languages. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot, what I found was, was certain moments of people sort of speaking past each other, which was really interesting. And, and one moment, which I, I highlight in the chapter that was really fascinating was um, the major uh, Tamil opposition party of the time, the, the, the federal party uh, introduced a, an, a proposal, an amendment to the constituent uh, assembly process saying that, you know, Buddhism shouldn't have the foremost place uh, Sri Lanka should be a state, which in the Tamil is Madhasarpatra, which means a state that doesn't lean towards a particular religion. Hmm. That phrase was translated into the English because the you know the 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 the, the official documentation that was submitted to the Constituent Assembly, namely the amendments and the proposed amendments, they all appeared in three languages for the people who were part of the Constituent Assembly. So in those official documents, that word Madhasarpatra was translated as secular but mm. then in the and and in the singhala as as this word lokayata which is a, a word you don't see that much in <laughs> in modern standard singhala but then if you follow the transcripts of the debates like if you read so during the debate they had a sort of live translator uh, who was translating from one language to the other but the actual transcripts of the debates only have the language in which the speech was spoken so you can see what the person said, and then you can kind of infer what the other people might have heard who were listening to it through a translator uh, when they speak in another language. And what was really interesting was that, that this this idea of of secularism, which in the Tamil phrasing, and indeed in the, the understanding of secularism that you see in India, really means, you know, what the Indians call sarvadharma sambhava, like equanimity towards, uh, what Indian lawyers would say, equanimity towards all religions, you know, mm -hmm. not not giving special status, uh, was understood, you know, sort of both in the kind of English and particularly in the Sinhala language listeners as indicating a kind of a state which was trying to draw rigid boundaries between religion and the state or was even maybe antagonistic to religion. So, you know, it's a sort of secularism a la a sort of, um, you know, strong form of socialism, which, which saw the state as kind of actively sifting out um, anything you know, having to do with religion from all political affairs. And so, you know, it's interesting to sort of trace these miscommunications. And, and in some ways, you know, part of, part of the, I don't know, the thinking that I was having when I was reading these things was well, like, what if, you know, what if that was clarified you know, during the debate? Would that have changed things? But, but anyway, just sort of tracing these out was really yeah. interesting. And I think for, uh, for, you know, scholars of South Asia or scholars of law, it's an interesting thing to think about. Sure. No, I mean, I th and I thought that point that you, you know, about basically um, 
that you make about some of the leaders of the more powerful monastic institutions in Sri Lanka. Sure, they wanted state support, but they didn't want su state supervision uh, or administrative oversight. So uh, that was certainly a sort of, in some ways, a perennial issue in the history of Buddhism. Um, totally, totally. Yeah. So, and, and in some ways, I mean, I guess just to add on to that a little bit, you know, one of, I think, hopefully one of the contributions uh, that this book will make to Buddhist studies, I, I do see this work, even though I've been talking a lot about law, as also a, a work of Buddhist studies, is to think about what, you know, what is, what is the modern Buddhist state? You know, when we think about the Buddhist state as a historical formation, indeed a mm -hmm. historical uh, a historical ideal uh, that was, you know, imagined and um, pursued in various ways. You know, what are sort of the conundrums and the characteristics uh, of the modern, of the contemporary Buddhist state? And, and, and is it, how does it inherit from those, uh, uh, you know, different historical iterations? Mm -hmm. um, another point that you mentioned that I should just point out is sort of something you point out throughout the book is that the language and constitution is often intentionally vague because that's the only way people can actually come to a, come to agree on the language as if it's can be interpreted in multiple ways. But then that is precisely one of the problems uh, later on when people try to interpret this um, sort of intentionally vague language. But anyway, mo moving on, so far we've talked about the history of debates about what the proper relationship between the government and Buddhism should be in the context of a new Sri Lanka characterized by a constitutional legal structure. And this is what you focus on in chapters two to four of your book. Um, and I should say that in my opinion, the book very clearly shows how limiting one's focus to the final law or constitution skewers the processes of debate, inviting, and compromises by which such laws and constitutions come into being. So in this sense, the book has much to say about constitutions and the development of laws far beyond the confines of Sri Lankan Buddhism. But I want to now turn to the second half of the book, and this is where you provide evidence for your main argument, namely that in the case of Sri Lanka, constitutional law has actually resulted in the hardening and escalation of religious conflicts rather than the resolution and de-escalation of such conflicts. Um, so in the case of Sri Lanka, you argue, this granting of special status that we just saw with the Buddhism chapter within the constitution of, of 72 led to an increase in Buddhist interest litigation. And this litigation in turn, and I'll use your words here, counterintuitively in empiric fashion, amplified and multiplied rather than allayed public concerns over the well-being of the status of Buddhism. So, what do you mean by this, and how did that happen? <laughs> when you, I mean, everyone must have this experience when you read your book, and then you read sentences like that, you're like, wow, I should have <laughs> that much more clearly. Yeah. Um, no, but thank you for that question. Um, indeed, I think that is, um, you know, inelegantly one of the, uh, in, however inelegant, you know, one of the, the, the places where I'm trying to be very clear about what I'm trying to do in the chapter. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would put it this way that, you know, um, so another intriguing discovery for me, and I, this is not a kind of feigned uh, counterintuitive sort of thing, or, I mean, I really, this was really counterintuitive to me as well, uh, that was that, you know, the, the protect, I, I, I sort of found, or I, I, I think I found that um, 
the, the protections for Buddhism that were placed in the Constitution to kind of ease uh, the anxieties of those people who th- worried about the well-being of Buddhism and the sol- you know the solidarity of Buddhists, the well-being of Buddhism in Sri Lanka, um, you know when when actually litigated or when actually used or when actually invoked, in fact did the opposite. It actually enhanced the anxieties about Buddhism's well-being. And it actually seemed to project uh, sort of concerns about Buddhism into a vast array of different types of legal and public debates. And and that, you know, the language of constitutional law, the mechanisms of constitutional litigation were were in some ways responsible for this. And here, uh, I mean, part of the reason it was counterintuitive is that I was coming to this through a certain theory of how I imagine constitutional courts might work. And this is a theory advanced by, you know, a scholar of constitutional law who I have great admiration for, uh, Ron Herschel. Uh, And his theory about how constitutional courts work in what he calls uh, constitutional theocracies or constitutional uh, uh, arrangements that privilege a certain set of religions or religion is that that constitutional courts, in fact, have a kind of moderating influence on, on religiosity in, in, in public life. So he, he says that you know, constitutional courts kind of muffle or they moderate or they mute the effects of religion in political life because you know, the judges in constitutional courts tend to be themselves a bit more secularist and bent, a bit more liberal and bent, a bit more uh, kind of pragmatist and bent. Um, and that, you know, he has this great sort of quote that constitutional law and constitutional courts have become, I think the quote something like, you know, bastions of relative sec- secularism, bastions of moderation, and they serve as uh, something like shields against the spread of religiosity. Hmm. And, you know, I, I sort of was finding something else. And, you know, looking, looking at a different set of sources, I was finding something else. And in this chapter, I was kind of... It's arguing against that view in the in this ways, and in, in, in that I was think I was using doc I was using a different set of documents than Herschel. I, w- I wasn't using so much the judgments of courts uh, as I was what I call you know the extended the expanded archive of constitutional law. So you know the case files, the affidavits, the you know written submissions, the you know interviews with the litigants, uh, you know reports of this in the newspaper and things like that. And what I was finding was that you know. Um, I wasn't seeing the work of these courts as sort of top-down actors that were, you know, you know, creating these official, you know, sort of issuing official regulations and sort of moderating the influence of religion on society. Uh, what I was seeing was that these courts, that particularly the high, the highest courts, the Supreme Court, was was acting as an institution that actually creates certain kinds of inducements and creates certain types of opportunities uh, for citizens who wouldn't otherwise have uh, a very prominent public forum to make prominent public influential, uh, you know, sometimes shrill claims about religion. Uh, so that, you know, rather than these sort of bastions of moderation, uh, courts were serving as a fora for otherwise average citizens, uh, you know, to make their claims in a highly visible, highly consequential context. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I also argue in this book that, you know, religion is unique here too, that you, you can't necessarily do that with every uh, category of constitutional law, but religion and Buddhism provide certain special opportunities for people to do that in constitutional courts. And I, I lay that out in the chapter. Mm-hmm. But that in doing this, uh, so in, in, you know, creating these incentives to bring religion or Buddhism into this visible forum, uh, 
you know, you also get incentives to bring religion into a, a, a wide range of disputes. Uh, so, you know, you either add religion on to a, a kind of existing grievance that you already have so that it helps you, you know, get a hearing in, the, in, in, in one of the apical courts or, or you make religion one part of uh, another set of, um, of grievances for strategic reasons, which I talk about in, the, in part two of the book, in this part of the book. Uh, so that, you know, for example, like debates about economic policy or debates over zoning or something become also debates over Buddhism. Mm. So that, you know, so you get there. So, so here, so what's happening is that, you know, concerns over Buddhism get more of a public viewing. They get mm-hmm. validated in this high court. They become, um, you know, more influential. Uh, this leads in some ways then to the kind of bringing of Buddhism into more and more facets of, of public dispute. Uh, and that in turn kind of ratchets up anxieties over the state of Buddhism over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you know, greater issues, a greater range of issues become Buddhist issues. Uh, and that this kind of, you know, has, you know, the, the, the fruition of this, I would argue, is the creation of what I see today in Sri Lanka, as, and, and not only in Sri Lanka, but in other parts of the Buddhist world. I think we see this in Thailand and Myanmar as well, particularly, emphatically in Myanmar, uh, a growing kind of culture of what I call Buddhist interest litigation. So that um, of making public legal claims in, in you know, public law courts uh, involving Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we, I, I mean, I do predict that, that we'll see more of this. And I'm sort of doing some writing about this now. Uh, as well. So I think that's, that's kind of the dynamics I'm trying to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pull out in the, in the chapter. Yeah. Great. Thanks for that. So in addition to increasing anxiety about Buddhism, another unintended consequence of the Buddhism chapter, the constitution, you argue, was infighting within Buddhism. That is, rather than unifying Buddhists in Sri Lanka, constitutional law actually led to many conflicts between monks and lay people, between different monastic institutions, and so on. Now, you illustrate this point very clearly by focusing, uh, well, you illustrate it many points throughout the book, but uh, one of the one of the um, one of the most fascinating cases you use to illustrate this point is that of the venerable Paragoda uh, Vimala Vansa Tero, a monk who tried to get a driver's license in 2004, but was refused. Um, and so I was wondering if you could just provide us with a brief outline of the case and then explain what this case reveals about the effect of constitutional law on intra-Buddhist conflict. Great. Th- thanks for the question. Um, I mean, one of the most interesting things to research in this book was this particular case um, involving uh, a Buddhist monk who lives uh, in the suburbs kind of outside of Colombo, uh, who in 2004 tried to get a driving license. Um, now in Sri Lanka, unlike other parts of the world, um, Buddhist monks, you know, most of the time you don't see them driving. Although I understand there are some, uh, monks who drive from time to time in, in rural areas and, um, and indeed sometimes around Colombo, but it's definitely not the sort of social norm, um, in Sri Lanka. Uh, but you know, there's, there's reasons why, uh, it may be helpful for Buddhist monks. And, and indeed, you know, Vimla Vamsa uh, is, you know, not like on, not, not unlike other Buddhist monks. He's, he's busy. He's, um, you know, the chief abbot of, of uh, a temple. He's a you know, principal in a, in a, a Buddhist school. He does other, con- you know, he goes to rituals and, and does um, social work activities and, and, and various things. Um, he lives at a temple that's not very wealthy. Um, Sri Lanka has a number of very wealthy temples, but, uh, it also has a lot of temples where, you know, that 
don't have a lot of donations and wealth. Uh, and so unlike monks from wealthy temples, he couldn't afford uh, to have basically a driver. Um, so a lot of monks from wealthier temples will have, you know, a car that belongs to the temple and then a driver who, who drives the car. And so he went, he, he tried to get his driver license in 2004 and <clears throat> to cut a long story short, I mean, he was, he wasn't able to do it. The um, DMV basically said, or the Sri Lankan equivalent of the DMV said, uh, you know, this is, this would violate uh, our constitutional duties under, you know, the Buddhism clause of the constitution uh, because monks aren't supposed to drive. Uh, and, you know, it sort of consulted a, a group of expert Buddhists and they, you know, basically they gave that argument. The, the DMV officer relayed that argument to, to Vimlavamsa and um, denied him the license. Uh, and then he took the case to court and uh, basically I mean, he sued on a number of grounds, but he, he, he asked the court to um, compel the DMV to issue him with the license saying, you know, both that he, as, as a citizen of Sri Lanka, uh, you know, he was entitled to a license because he was of the right age and the right, you know, um, he had the right qualifications, but also because, you know, it, it, not only was it not a harm to Buddhism, but, you know, not giving him the driver's license would be a harm to Buddhism because it wouldn't allow him to fulfill his duties as a Buddhist monk. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, what, what I try to draw out in the case, I mean, this, um, the case basically went from this kind of very limited uh, argument to a very high profile case involving lots of lots of Buddhist monks and some very important uh, Buddhist monks. Uh, in which, you know, the, the Sri Lankan court system, the, the, the appeals court and the Supreme Court was being called upon to answer the question, you know, is it okay for monks to have driving license <laughs> or not? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, the dynamics I try and point out there are both the, sort of the way that this, this case and the way that other, you know, I would, I would have it other um, cases of, of public law and constitutional law involving religion, the, the, you know, the, what happens is you take this existing debate. I mean, there's, there's, it's not like this debate was created by the court. I mean, you know, the, the, the role, the vocation of monks and what they can and can't do has long been a topic of controversy, you know, throughout the Buddhist world for, you know, as, we, as long as we have sources. Mm -hmm. uh, but it takes this, you know, longstanding, you know, maybe low intensity, ambient conflict, and it casts a spotlight on it. It, you know, makes it, you know, it, it makes you argue it under certain conditions. It, you know, sort of creates the, uh, um, it, it sort of formats the the conflict in certain ways as involving, you know, two parties. Uh, it, you know, forces litigants to argue through a certain set of terms, you know, the language of rights, the language of Buddhist protections. Um, it, you know, raises the profile of the, of the dispute. It raises the stakes of the dispute. Um, and it basically takes this sort of, um, as I say, sort of low intensity, long standing conflict and um, creates it, you know, it sharpens it and makes it more high intensity. And so, uh, but it also then, I think, exposes, uh, leads to the exposing of what really is uh, a challenging fact and a, and a common fact in a lot of Buddhist countries, which is that, or at least in Sri Lanka, that you do have a competition over who has the authority to speak in the name of Buddhism, mm -hmm. that you, while you have certain monks that have a certain, you know, elevated status and, uh, you know, that the, the hierarchies of monastic authority in Sri Lanka are by no means, uh, you know, uh, universally accepted by monks. Uh, it also shined light on the economic equality in the Sangha. Uh, it also, you know, created this situation where you had the very unseemly uh, 
uh, event of a lay, you know, a, a judge, a civil court judge, a lay person, uh, an appeals court judge, having to you know, having to kind of um, give a decision to two groups of disputing monks over what proper monastic comportment is, you know? So mm. it, so the fact that you had like a lay authority making authoritative decrees about, you know, orthodox or orthoprax Buddhism uh, <laughs> didn't sit well, you know, when I interviewed both parties, like it didn't sit well even with the so-called, you know, victors of the of the case. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Vimavamsa ultimately did not, the, the, the court did not uphold, uphold his uh, his petition and, and um and today in Sri Lanka, it's still a subject of controversy whether monks can drive or not. But in fact, it's become more of a sort of public, you know, this this debate about monks driving has been ratcheted up. And so you can see, for example, in a recent you know bill that was proposed in Sri Lanka's parliament to standardize codes of conduct for the different Nikaya or um, you know, Buddhist fraternities in Sri Lanka, you know, there's a, a whole separate clause on monks should not be driving. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I can't imagine that having been in there before the the court case. That's not in the, I mean, this happened sort of after the book uh, yeah. was on its way. to press. So um, it's a really fascinating, I think, sort of blow by blow and really uh, in-depth examination of how these things go from, again, these ambient longstanding conflicts into these pitched uh, legal battles and the way that the legal process sort of you know, makes them more rigid, makes them more intractable, makes them more, or even if they are solved one way or the other by the courts, uh, makes the resolution, um, you know, uh, you know, tries to solve them with a resolution, which is from the perspective of both sides, I guess, uh, you know, sort of religiously untenable of, of lay people pronouncing on the, yeah. um, uh, orthopraxy of monks. But it's, I think it's a chapter. Can, can I just say too? I mean, yeah. I, I wrote this chapter in mind with like thinking about using it for classes and things because I think as a standalone case, it it, it really tries to capture uh, a lot about the conundrums of you know monastic life in in contemporary legal settings. Mm -hmm. And and so basically, with if in the absence of constitutional law, what would have happened that this issue would have just been dealt with according to Buddhist monastic regulation. I think this issue would have been dealt with, uh, you know, on a case by case basis. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, the, as it were, the um, the equivocation about the issue, or the various ways of addressing the issue or managing the issue, uh, would have not been. Uh, you could have done it in various ways. It wouldn't be, have become as visible. You wouldn't have had to have a once and for all solution to the problem. You know, sure. maybe you would have had you know, local monastic authorities in. Uh, you know, the northern province saying you can do one thing and, and in Colombo saying you could do another. So mm -hmm. you would have permitted the kind of uh, compromises, the kind of episodic solutions, the kind of incremental negotiations. You would have preserved the possibility of all that in a way that, you know, once it, it get, these things get churned through the constitutional litigation process, those possibilities really, in my opinion, get overwritten to a large extent. Not completely, but to a large extent. Sure. Well, great. There is so much we didn't cover. We didn't talk about the, um, a lot of the, talk about the historical developments in the 70s and 80s, the rise of the Tamil separatist movement um, and the changing sort of ideology within the Sri Lankan government and the way in which these um, affected the relationship between constitutional law and Buddhism. We didn't talk about, um, you have a whole chapter on the issue of conversion, particularly conversion of non-Christians to Christianity. Um, so listeners will have to go out and read the book themselves 
to get all that rich detail. But as a final question, I wanted to ask if uh, what you're working on currently, now that this project is done. Um, yeah, thank, thanks for asking. Uh, so uh, I'm currently involved in a, uh, a, a sort of big research project um, which looks at the contemporary practices of Buddhist monastic law in Sri Lanka and the sort of links with state law. So in some ways, I guess it's a, the project came out of that uh, chapter that I wrote about the, the driving license um, case. Uh, but what it tries to do is to, you know, I think um, examine what is a really neat uh, aspect of contemporary monastic practice in Sri Lanka, which is this fully elaborated system of dispute resolution of, of courts of, um, you know, legal decisions. And in many cases, you know, in some cases, um, you know, sort of precedents and things, uh, and to look at, you know, the ways in which, uh, how that system developed, um, the kind, you know, what are the practices associated with that system? How do they, do, do they build upon or do they, they alter, um, you know, earlier sorts of practices of Buddhist monastic law in Sri Lanka, um, but also the ways in which, or, or just as importantly, the ways in which the state has, uh, state laws have influenced the way in which monastic law is imagined and practiced. So looking at attempts on the part of the state, for example, over the course of the 20th century to create a comprehensive code of monastic conduct that they could um, implement um, attempts on the part of the state to create a single monastic court system. I mean, these are sort of uh, aspects of Buddhist history in Sri Lanka which haven't been written about, um, but which I came to obviously in the study of you know in, in looking at this book. And <clears throat> this this next re research project is part of a larger, I think, longer term project uh, in which I really want to compare the you know the legal regulation of Buddhism or, or the legal regulation of um, monasticism in Sri Lanka with other parts of the Theravada world. So I, I'm, I'm hoping to do a larger collaborative project uh, in the next couple of years uh, with some colleagues who work in, in Myanmar and who work in Thailand and, you know, maybe Laos and Cambodia too, if, if possible. So, uh, yeah, I'm sort of just getting into that and uh, feeling excited and overwhelmed by it right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. We'll look, we'll look forward to uh, seeing that um, a year or two or three down the road. Um, well, that's it then, and I just want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today um, and to thank our listeners. So that's it for today's New Books in Buddhist Studies. See you next time. <laughs>